Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome everyone to the Cato Institute, everybody here in the Hayek Auditorium, everybody watching online, uh, and following on Twitter using uh, hashtag CatoCEF. And if you want to send comments and you're on Twitter, use hashtag CatoCEF. Uh, I also want to welcome everybody who is watching us on the live stream and may have something called Cover It Live on that live stream, which I'm going to talk about in a few minutes so that everybody knows what that is. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you today to uh, this discussion. It's a topic that makes me really happy that we can have it, um, because our ability to talk about is all school choice, good school choice, is a sign that school choice has really become sort of a mainstream thing. The idea that you ought to be able to select a school for your child is something that we all accept, and it's broad enough now that we can start to say, well, maybe there's some school choice we don't really want. We have that luxury. Uh, just to give you a sense for where we are in school choice, so 30 years ago, uh, there were no charter schools, no voucher programs, not including town tuitioning, for those of you who really know your school choice. That's in Maine and Vermont, where if you're in a small uh, town not big enough to maintain a high school, they would pay for you to go to a private school or another high school. So we're not going to talk about town tuitioning. But if you want to, you can ask some questions and answers. Anyway, setting aside town tuitioning, 30 years ago, there were no vouchers, uh, no tax credit scholarships. Today, there are more than 3 million kids in charter schools. There are 180,000 or so kids in private schools using vouchers. There are 271,000 kids using tax credits or scholarship tax credits to go to private schools. And there are about 15,000 students using education savings accounts. So that's a whole lot more school choice than we used to have to include private schools and these charter schools that are sort of like private schools, sort of like public schools. There are also about 3.5 million kids in magnet schools and many more in states and districts around the country who have some other kind of public school choice. So school choice is clearly a part of the mainstream now. Choice is expected. It's something you think that you should always have when it comes to education. Um, but with an expectation that parents have of having some ability to control where the kids go to school, we really have to start examining, well, what are good and bad components of a school choice program? Um, maybe we ought to talk even about what's the end goal of school choice. So is it higher test scores? Is it happier families? Is it just whatever a family wants they ought to be able to choose in a school? These are all things we really need to start talking about a lot now that school choice is mainstream. So, to work us through these very happy questions, we're fortunate to have four terrific panelists uh, who are going to discuss what school choice really should look like. Uh, up first is John Merrifield. He's a professor of economics at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He's the founder of the Journal of School Choice, and he is a contributor to our book, Educational Freedom, right here. Take a good look at it. Educational Freedom, Remembering Andrew Coulson, Debating His Ideas. And as discussed in John's chapter, and likely I would guess to come up a few times this afternoon, he's the creator of the Education Freedom Index. Um, another very interesting point is he also at one time taught a young, starry-eyed undergrad named Corey DeAngelis, who's sitting right here. 
Um, so one sublot for today is if debate ensues between the two of them, will the apprentice surpass the master? Something to look for. My expectation is a tie, but we're going to see what happens. So next on my right is Michael Petrilli. He's the president of Thomas B. Fordham Institute and no stranger to the Cato stage. Uh, if ever you need a good foil um, in education debates or just well-stated thoughts on a plethora of education issues, Mike is your guy. He's also the author of, I think, an excellent book, and you were here for this book, I think, The Diverse Schools Dilemma, A Parent's Guide to Socioeconomically Mixed Public Schools, and that's among numerous writings he has, including, I, I was going to say a very recent series of blog posts, but it's sort of an ongoing series of blog posts, uh, about achievement versus attainment outcomes of school choice. Are they in line? Should we be looking at those to decide whether school choice works? And the question is, will that come up today? Well, stay tuned, because we're going to find out. Suspense. Yeah, it's killing you, isn't it? Like your blog posts. Um, then after Mike, we have Hallie Potter, who is a fellow at the Century Foundation, uh, who researches public policy solutions for addressing educational inequality. She is co-author with Richard D. Collenberg, who's also no stranger to Cato, by the way, of A Smarter Charter, Finding What Works for Charter Schools and Public Education. So if ever there were a title that fits with what we're talking about today, it's that. Uh, prior to joining Century, Hallie taught at Two Rivers Public Charter School in Northeast Washington, D.C. She graduated summa cum laude from Yale University with a bachelor's degree in religious studies. And she came down from New York City for this. And we thank her especially for that, especially since it's your first trip, right, back to D.C. since having a baby. So she should probably get a round of applause just for that. Um, I also think, by the way, your religious studies uh, may come in handy here because uh, my fear is it could take divine intervention to make these guys stop talking. Um, so finally, we have Corey DeAngelis, who is the crack policy analyst at the Center for Educational Freedom. Um, he just completed his PhD at the University of Arkansas's Department of Education Reform, but he's actually said many times that everything he ever needed to know he learned from John Merrifield. Um, he's also the author of the new Cato Policy Analysis, The Public Benefit of Private Schooling, Test Scores Rise When There Is More of It. Now, the way things will work today is each speaker will have about 10 minutes of prepared remarks, uh, which you please come to the podium for that. The order of the speakers will be John Merrifield, Mike Petrilli, Hallie Potter, and then Corey DeAngelis. Then after that, I may ask a question or two myself, but then I'm gonna open things up for questions or comments. And yes, I said comments. So if you've been to an event I've moderated lately, uh, you know that I've kind of had it with the whole kabuki dance, the charade of saying, please just ask a question, and then people ask, a, give a long statement that ends with a question mark, and then I act like, see, you did exactly what I said by asking a question. I know that's not what happens. Um, and so feel free if you'd like to make a statement or ask a question. If you even want to respond to something someone else in the audience said as a statement, that's fine. All I ask is that you follow some simple ground rules, which is try to be concise, and to be civil for sure. And if I think that you're running afoul of either of those rules, I will cut you off and potentially have you escorted out of the auditorium, although I don't really have the ability to do that. Um, 
Now, uh, also, for a long time, like I said, we've taken questions and comments via Twitter, and we still will, using hashtag CatoCEF. But for those of you who are watching on the live stream on the Cato.org event page, you'll be able to engage by typing questions into the box that I think is below where the video is coming through. Uh, it's called Cover It Live. And then uh, CEF Research Assistant Blake Horty out in the audience, raise your hand a little higher. So, so if I call on him a lot, it's not because I like him more than anyone else. It's probably the opposite. Um, but it's because he is running Cover It Live for us. Um, and so you should be able to send questions and comments through there as well. Uh, that also means that you may have seen me in recent events sort of staring at my phone, uh, looking like I'm trying to find Twitter questions. Oh, I'm not going to be doing that anymore. And really, I was just playing Fortnite the whole time, so I won't be doing that either. And so with that, I give the podium to John Merrifield. I see that my PowerPoint is up there, but lately I've noticed that people get bored to death by looking at PowerPoint. So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to extemporaneously go through what I think I remember is in here. And then if I think maybe if I have about a minute left, then I'm going to go through there to prove it. And then hopefully you'll email me and see there's the email address to get the copy of it to uh, kind of remember what I said. All right. Oh, one other thing I want to say before I get into my, my actual remarks is if you ever want a model for productive civil disagreement, they're on both my right and left here, invite Neil and invite Mike. Because they'll, I, from what I know, they disagree on a lot of things. But every time they do, it's civil, and I learn a lot from, from the process. So with that, let me jump into how school choice can be negative. Uh, it's hard to, to, to nail that down, and the reason that it is, because anytime you give an additional alternative, you invariably help thousands of children, and, and that's probably more than most people can claim for accomplishment for their whole lifetime. But sometimes choice can be a negative when people talk about it the wrong way. When we embrace a lousy experiment in market control and then, and then somehow pitch it as this was a test of whether markets can transform education, that's a way that it can become a negative. And the school choice program isn't a negative in and of itself, no matter how small it is, but it can be converted into something that makes, that makes it harder for us to move forward. It, it can defeat the incrementalism that a lot of us think exists with school choice programs, that if we, that if we, if we enact a small program, people will start getting used to having choices, and then we'll enact bigger programs, and then we'll, well, first of all, we've already proven that that doesn't work, and maybe this, this might be a contributing reason to it, is because we embrace things like the Milwaukee program, which, again, is a great accomplishment for thousands of children, but unfortunately, it hasn't helped the Milwaukee school system perform any better, and our, our people that oppose the changes in school systems, especially school choice base, are starting to point that out. The dosage has been too small. And by the way, I got permission for this metaphor earlier. What would we think about Viagra if we had been trying it in 10 milligram dosages? We would be concluding that it does not work. Okay, so that's what we've been doing with school choice. We've been trying a little teensy weensy dosages and we've been, we've been supporting narratives on the opponents that says it doesn't make much difference, which is a half truth based on it hasn't made much difference because it's been in tiny dosages. We haven't yet leveraged anything resembling market-based reform because the two, two or three main ingredients of market-based reform have not been present in any of these so-called experiments. That's why I call them lousy experiments. I mean, they're experiments in moving children around within the existing system. 
Okay? But that's not what we need. We need a transformed system. We need a system in which we not only maybe at first move children to better choices than the existing system, but we create a dynamic to where the choices are changed. That's what we need in a nation at risk, which, by the way, we keep reaffirming over and over again, even though only the original report has that actual name on it. But like if you go to the Goals 2000 legislation buried in there in a Hundred page 111 or something, is where the Congress states what a total gold-plated disaster the current system is. And then it comes up in different contexts. The 2001 Commission on National Security said that our country is endangered by the fact that we can't find very many scientists to do national security-related stuff that haven't been born overseas and as a result might be questionable in either their loyalty or the heck they might even be disguised spies. And by the way, I'm an immigrant, so there's nothing anti-immigrant in any of this. It's just that uh, that commission, that's what they said. They said we should be able to find more of our own scientists from our own population. But we struggle to do that. So my basic uh, notion about all of this is we need transformative school choice, not only to support the narrative that it's an important part of transformation that we need because we're a nation at risk, and also we need political feasibility. So how do you get those two things? Well, my way to pitch it would be to call it non-discrimination. We need to stop discriminating against families that believe that an alternative to the assigned public school will work better for them. And they're all taxpaying families. Why should the fact that their children aren't thriving in the assigned school force them to pay twice to find something that works for their child? So non-discrimination is the, is the title that I give that. And I think if we, if we, if we uh, discuss it in that sense, I think that'll help uh, enact it. Okay, so again, the current evidence is not a good basis uh, from which to make a choice about whether school choice does or doesn't work. Uh, I remember, in fact, I think it was in this exact room probably about 10 years ago, this was a subject we were talking about Milwaukee, and I don't think we were talking about New Orleans yet. It was too early that Katrina hadn't happened yet. Uh, but one of the people, and I won't mention them because it isn't about people, uh, was there saying a you know, market-based reform, we, we, you know, we've tried it and it hasn't worked. And uh, it was Andrew Colson and I said, well, well, why don't we wait to reach that conclusion until we try it? It's still the same thing. We need profits. We need easy market entry in essence, and we need to have price decontrol. Those are the key features of markets. We don't have that in any of the, in any of the main experiments. They're not experiments anymore because we keep trying the same thing over and over again. We keep getting the same result. It makes a little bit of a difference. Okay, but not in a big enough difference, and that's the narrative from the anti-transformation, anti-school side, is it hasn't made any difference, as if that supposedly means that it isn't going to make any difference. That's sort of a half-truth, because we haven't tried big dosages. We, we, somehow we could conclude that in a bigger dosage, the, the Rick Hess bulldozer, as, a, as opposed to the uh, Rick Hess pickaxe, that's the metaphor he uses, uh, we've tried the pickaxe, and it's produced little nicks on things, and we've helped thousands of children, and that's great, but we have 50 million children, and we're leaving way too many of them behind still, and we need to move forward with uh, something that changes the choices. How much time do I have left? Oh, there's a clock right Oh, okay. Wow, I still have four minutes left. Okay, so let me, uh, let me move on to some of this other, th other thing. Uh, okay, so one of the things that we have tried that's popular is chartered public schools, is by the way, our shortest route to something transformational, although as I tell people, you can tell I love metaphors, that short route might be a pretty rough four-wheel drive road. Okay? So it might be pretty hard to, to do that. If, if we could introduce the permission to co-pay tuition into that, we would eliminate the pricelessness 
that leaves us stuck in central plan optimization. Okay, until we introduce price signals into the schooling industry, it will, it will function like all industries that are priceless. That, that, that's the only two, one of two ways to do things. You can either do it price, through price signals and free enterprise. What are we going to produce? How are we going to produce it? Where are we going to produce it? Who gets it? The, the Eco 101 stuff. Or through central planning. And central planning has never worked anywhere ever. And it's not working in K through 12. Yet, the vast majority of what's going on in there is what I call central plan optimization. It has a low upside. And we should keep doing it until, until enough of us recognize that it's something we need to reject as a strategy and we need to move on to a discussion where we figure out a political feasible way to introduce price signals, reject pricelessness. And so back to my charter comment, the easiest way to do that since chartering for now, and here's where the four-wheel drive code in, is politically correct and has bipartisan support would be just to allow chartered public schools to charge tuition on top of whatever they sub subsidy they get if they can get people to pay it. So you know, that's, a, that's an issue that, well, maybe people won't pay it. Fine. That's how the system works. If they can do that, you see, then we eliminate all those wait lists, which are creating scandalous behavior by a lot of charter operators. Google that sometimes, charter comma scandal. You'll get millions of hits. Talk about as something endangering school choice of any kind is when you give a bad name to school choice of any kind by scandalous behavior, which is the result of not letting the price system set the tuition level of chartered public schools. Now, we should set the subsidy level so that not many chartered public schools would charge a tuition right, through competitive process. But some of them do something, that, or would if they could. Well, some do now through donations. They, they charge, they would charge if they were allowed to, a tuition level that wouldn't leave them dependent on, on donations, and then that would eliminate the wait lists, which are the reasons, by the way, for the scandalous behavior. Shortages yield quality reduction, something that actually economists agree upon. You know, the joke about economists not agreeing on, if you put all the ones together, you wouldn't reach a conclusion. Well, that's something economists agree upon. If you control price, at a level which yields shortages, which is the case for most chartered public schools, you're going to get quality reduction, which is scandalous, which makes school choice to the average consumer of political information that gets it in 30-second soundbite look risky. Well, it's only risky if you control the setting of the price. And by the way, most charter operators aren't allowed to make profit either. Not only a few states allow that. So there goes another reason that it's no test of charter-based reform. Milwaukee. It's limited to low-income children, a subset of them, no possibility to set the price through the market, and profit-making, I think, is mostly still disallowed. Well, so don't call that an experiment in how markets work, because it's not. It's still a good idea if it's all that's politically feasible, but we need more to advance the movement and to transform the system. That's what we need to do. We've been going since the Nation at Risk report, how long ago is that now, about 35 years? Yeah, 35 exactly. years. Yeah, exactly, 30, yeah, 35 years almost to the day. It's been a frenzied futility. Test scores are flat, we keep spending more. We've gotta try something different. School choice is catalytic potentially in the significant dose. Punctuality. A perfect 10 minutes. Thank you very much. extra points. Oh, I don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
Well said, John. And uh, thank you, Neil and Corey, for inviting me. And thanks, John, for your kind words about Neil and I, uh, you know, enjoying being one another's foil. We, there are a few things we probably agree on. I like Fortnite, for example. Actually, my, my sons like Fortnite a lot. If, if you don't know what Fortnite is, you're, you know, let, let me just say, uh, if, if you, you know, are one of America's, you know, 70 million children, uh, they know what Fortnite is. Uh, so get on that. Uh, but it's great to be here. And I have to say, this is a tough audience. Neil was giving some good jokes there earlier, and he was getting nothing. But he is available for, for birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, uh, other things. Uh, and so... Yeah, because at Cato, you, they, you believe in, again, you know, being able to do work on the side, the, you know, free market, all that, yes. All that stuff. Okay, yeah. so what's your, it's uh, Neil McCluskey, tellsjokes.com, is that the? Uh, I'm going to come up with more clever. Oh, yeah, all right, all right. Yeah. <sighs> okay, as I said, tough audience. All right, but uh, let me share a few thoughts about this question, about what, what does uh, good school choice look like. Uh, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about is something I wrote about this fall in National Affairs. Uh, and the article was titled, Is School Choice Enough? And those of you that, that uh, follow this debate know that my answer is no, it's not enough. But let me first by say that uh, it is certainly better than what we have now. And I'm a huge supporter of school choice in all of its forms. Uh, and I think it, uh, you know, I, I know John is, I, I agree with a lot of what John said, but I think we have to be careful not to paint too gloomy a picture. Uh, I mean, not only do we have this big expansion of parental choice that has happened over the last 25 years, especially in urban areas like the District of Columbia, where we are today, which has now 47% of its public school students in public charter schools, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and in D.C. and many other urban areas, those charter schools are performing at incredibly high levels, uh, giving us some hope uh, that indeed uh, we can make a big difference when it comes to low-income kids and helping them get on a better path. So, you know, let's, let's not be overly gloomy. And there's some uh, great news on the private school choice side as well, both in terms of numbers uh, and in terms of outcomes, including here in D.C. again, where uh, the private school voucher program, though small and though imperfect, uh, has been shown to significantly boost graduation rates. So, uh, so good things happen. And we, I think it's important to, to remind us of that because we know from, uh, from common sense, also from some social science research, that when people think there's no progress being made, you know, they, they can give up. There can be a sense of, well, we, you know, let's forget this right now. And there is a narrative right now that education reform is not working. And you see this having real world consequences with some policymakers, philanthropists, others saying, all right, well, that didn't work, so we'll go try something else, or we're just going to forget education altogether. That's, that's dangerous, uh, because there are some things that are working, and there are some things where we've made progress, and we want to build on it. We want to go faster, further, uh, but we don't want to have this attitude that, that nothing has worked. Uh, but the question, is school choice enough? The, the, the reason I say no is because uh, of what John said in terms of an, a nation being at risk, that we still have uh, a system where there are way too many young people who are going through our education system, coming out the other end, and uh, not at all getting prepared for what comes next. And when I think about a thought experiment that says, okay, what if we could transform our system into a market-based system with all the designs that John and Corey and Neil and others would want to see, uh, you know, with wide open school choice, include religious schools, include, you know, schools can set their own tuition, all of this, uh, a big chunk of it subsidized by taxpayers, uh, but, you know, with parents really driving it. Imagine we had all of that and, and that parents were happy and that you did, you know, surveys and the consumers out there, the parents overwhelmingly said, we like this system, we like it a lot more than the old system that we had. 
First of all, that would be great. That would be way better than what we got right now. But would it be enough if we still have a system where only a third of American kids are leaving high school uh, with the reading and math skills to be able to succeed in college, with you know, fewer than 10% of low-income kids uh, get, being prepared to succeed in college, with these very depressing upward mobility rates that we've learned about recently uh, in this country that you know, we, we have a real problem right now, especially among low-income kids, that you know, if you're born in America today, you have about a 50-50 chance of growing up poor. And that strikes a lot of us as un-American, you know, that, that we are supposed to be the land of opportunity. And uh, I think a lot of us believe that our school system is, uh, or at least our schools, is, you know, have a role to play in helping uh, to change that dynamic. We also know that it's a much bigger problem, uh, that the reason that we have this problem has to do with much more than our schools, of course. It has to do with family breakdown. It has to do with challenges in, in a lot of neighborhoods, uh, you know, all the, all the stuff that we talk about outside of education. But we do think, uh, many of us, we do believe that excellent schools can change that life trajectory for low-income kids. And we are getting better evidence on that. We see it in the KIPP charter schools and some of the other high-performing charter networks, which are you know, taking, again, a very high poverty population of kids, and instead of getting 10% of them to and through four-year degrees, they're getting 40%, 50%. It's not 100%, and in my view, probably will never will be. But man, 40 or 50% is way better. And that, you know, it, when I look at what our country needs and, and what our schools need to achieve, that's the kind of thing that I, I care about, is that, yes, by all means, more parental choice, uh, you know, more parental satisfaction. Uh, let's not discriminate against families that want a religious education for their children and, and on and on. But that is, that is necessary but not sufficient, uh, at least if we want uh, to change some of these big social trends in America and if we want our schools to live up to this promise that, that they're going to give real opportunity. So what that means to me then is that we need to make sure that not only our parents uh, getting to choose, but that those choices are good choices, and, and especially when it comes to low-income kids. Now, I keep saying that because, look, if you're affluent in America today, your school doesn't matter as much, okay? You know, Neil's kids and my kids, look, they're, they're going to be okay because, uh, you know, regardless of what happens between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day, because we're going to make sure that they're okay. Hey, it would be much better if they were having really engaging educational experiences. And, of course, I want that for my own sons, and they were learning as much as possible. Uh, but, uh, you know, whatever they don't get between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., we're going to make sure they get uh, after school on the weekends in the summertime. Uh, and, and they're going to be okay. Uh, that is not the case for low-income kids, uh, where, where the argument is, look, if— if they get even just a decent school, that's not going to be enough to change their trajectory. They need an excellent education. And what I don't see in some of the proposals out there, uh, in some of the ideas and some of the plans, especially the ones that don't have any uh, quality control around results, around uh, student impacts, I don't see a mechanism uh, to encourage the kind of excellent teaching and learning and instruction and innovation that's going to help change the trajectory of, of low-income kids' lives. I don't see that in many of the education savings accounts programs. I don't see it in a lot of the, the, uh, the tax credit scholarship programs. And we certainly, even in a lot of the charter school programs, we still have states uh, where there's just not a lot of great oversight, where the dynamic is there's lots of choices. In some cities, you could argue too many choices. There's you know, so too, too many schools chasing too few kids, and so they're all kind of barely surviving. And for whatever reason, the market hasn't yet worked to, you know, 
uh, kind of put a few of those schools out of their misery so that it's, it's a little more rational. But, uh, you know, but, but you don't see uh, the kind of dynamics that would give you any, any reason to believe that the choices that parents are getting access to are going to be those life-changing kinds of choices. And so, you know, the trick is, how do we try to have the best of both worlds? And, and look, I know there are trade-offs. You can't, you know, you can't always have everything. You've got to make some decisions. But can we open up choice as wide as possible? possible, you know, to include as many different kinds of institutions, including religious schools, including, you know, the, the kind of uh, innovations that a lot of people are excited about where parents might be able to mix and match, you know, from after school programs to online stuff to, you know, it doesn't have to be a quote school. I mean, I'm open to all of that. But how do we do that? And at the same time, have some kind of uh, some kind of approach where we also look at quality, where we also look at impact. Uh, I think what we have learned from what we've seen so far is that uh, you know parent parental choice is not enough to drive quality. Uh, and look, part of that is because some parents, you know, they they are prioritizing. Uh, other things than boosting student achievement or better preparing kids for college or better preparing kids for a career. And it may be a Maslow's hierarchy kind of deal. You know, they want their kid in a safe place. And if they live in a dangerous neighborhood, that is a very important ideal. I want that for them too, but it's not enough. We need to have a higher bar than that. And so that's the challenge of us in policy is to try to say, what can we do to try to expand it as much as possible, but also have some confidence that, that these are going to be life-changing opportunities and choices that parents are going to have access to. Thank you. And I didn't even mention my new blue suit. Looks good. It'll come up, and, come up in a future joke. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a, a big topic, so I'm going to focus uh, my comments on contrasting two ends of the spectrum, if you have it, of school choice. So looking at private school vouchers versus public school choice. And, yeah, okay, great. Um, and I'll step back a little bit because, you know, as much as Neil was very excited that we could jump in with the fact that, you know, we're taking choice for granted, I want to pause for a second and recognize that there are good arguments, I think, to be skeptical about choice in general. Um, and I think for me, part of why I still want to jump in with choice as the starting point is that it's simply a reality already. Um, we know that 14% uh, of all public school students are already in schools of choice. That's charter and other types of public schools that are schools of choice. 8% of all students are in private schools. And this top statistic is the one that, you know, I think sometimes we forget about. 19% of all public school students, their parents said they specifically chose that neighborhood for that public school. So when we talk about school choice, I think we need to keep in the back of our minds that the biggest form of school choice currently is choosing a neighborhood, and that's a type of school choice that is so dependent on socioeconomic status. And so, you know, if that's the reality, then school choice as it stands is certainly really unequal uh, to families of different backgrounds. Uh, there was a few years ago a story about a mother uh, from Ohio who was a single mom, 40 years old. She had two kids, and she was really unhappy with the kids that uh, the school that her kids were zoned for. And so she 
forged some papers, used her father's address to send them to the neighboring school district and ended up uh, being convicted of felony charges for this and serving some jail time. And the schools that she was contrasting here in Akron Public Schools where they actually lived was a school that was academically failing. It was 95% low income. Nearby, just a quick drive over to where her father lived in the neighboring school district. This was an excellent school under the uh, state rating system and a school that was only 20% low income. And so, you know, if, as long as we have the main road of school choice being families choosing neighborhoods, we're always going to be disadvantaging families like Kelly's. And worse, I think families that don't even have some of the options that she had to try and, you know, navigate this. It didn't end up working out in this situation, but, you know, People are always trying to find creative solutions to get the very best for their kids. So I do think it's really important to have that in the backdrop. But you know, if that's the case and there's a, a good reason that we want to expand choice for families, especially for low-income families that don't have that option just to move to a different neighborhood for a different school, I still think we need to be cautious about private school vouchers. So first... We have to think about the academic results. Um, Mike talked a little bit about accountability in voucher programs. That varies widely, but in general, you know, in most private school voucher programs, schools are not held to the same standards of accountability, which means not only that we don't have guarantees around performance or you know, having to answer for poor performance, but sometimes we just don't even have the data to see how students are doing. Um, this particular graph is from the uh, Louisiana Scholarship Program um, from a recent study in, in 2016 showing that um, this is from after two years of data and now they've looked at after three years of data seeing no growth for students in reading or math. Um, big drops the first year, making up for that a little bit after the second and third year. This is really not the kind of outcome that we would be looking for in a program that's supposed to radically disrupt outcomes for students. Second, private school vouchers are inextricably linked with some big risks around civil rights protections. Uh, not um, uh, most states, but not all states, have a requirement in their voucher program that schools can't discriminate based on race or national origin. So there's some risk there, but at least in most uh, programs that is accounted for. Only a couple of states, however, have stand, uh, clauses that say that voucher programs can't discriminate based on religion or gender, and none of the programs have prohibitions against discriminating based on sexual orientation. Uh, this is a, a screenshot from a student handbook um, from a school in North Carolina that participates in uh, the state's uh, voucher program, and this particular school will not admit students who are non-Christian and will not admit students from uh, LGBT families or LGBT students. Uh, and, you know, even putting aside the question of whether families should be able to choose religious education for their students, should schools specifically be able to use students' religious backgrounds uh, as cause for whether or not to admit them. Um, to my mind, if we are using taxpayer dollars there, that gets really scary. And if you want to you know, fill in the blank uh, with 
uh, you know, other religions uh, and other types of protected categories there, um, I think probably everyone in this room would have some reason to be worried about a world where we take away those civil rights protections. And finally, just what it means when we are funneling money into private institutions. Uh, you know, fundamentally, I think there is a value that public schools play in our society for serving as a place that's bringing together students of different backgrounds, that is teaching the next generation to be invested in civic life, to be an institution that is responsive to the populace. And you know, just to take an extreme example of what the other side of this can look like, you know, in some of the tax credit scholarship programs, uh, there have been programs set up so that as a donor, you can actually end up profiting from participating in these programs. You end up getting a bigger credit than the actual donation that you have made. Now, that's an extreme example, um, but that type of uh, market incentive, um, I think it's hard to argue, is really using the market to improve education outcomes. I think other profit motives are getting muddied in there. So if it's not private school vouchers, what can you do to expand choice? There are a lot of options within the public sector. And one of the uh, dynamics that I want to introduce here is to think about school integration. So choice can be a chance for greater segregation, where families may be choosing to be with uh, other families of similar backgrounds, or it may be that they simply only have access through segregated social networks or through different uh, amounts of information to schools that end up being more segregated. However, you can also completely flip that equation and use choice as a way intentionally to bring students of different backgrounds together. And part of the reason this matters is that we have research going back five decades now showing that the socioeconomic composition of a school is what really uh, matters more than any other school-based factor for student achievement. Uh, this particular graph is looking at a program uh, just around the corner from Montgomery County uh, where students were randomly assigned to schools with different poverty levels. And even though the low-income uh, uh, low schools with higher poverty rates were getting extra dollars per pupil, it didn't matter to have that extra money. It made a much bigger difference for the students if they were in the schools with lower poverty rates with a greater socioeconomic mix of students. They're the ones who got so much closer to closing that achievement gap and saw huge gains in their math scores. So what does this look like then if you have public school choice? You know, a few of these uh, options have already floated in the discussion. Magnet schools. Uh, District-wide equitable choice uh, programs. These are sometimes called controlled choice programs. Cambridge, Massachusetts is an example of a district that has had a program like this for many years. Basically, they turn all of the schools in their district into magnet schools. You don't have an assigned school when you live in that district. You, as a family, rank your options, and then students are assigned to schools based on an algorithm that combines those preferences with one that looks at the demographics of a school to make sure that all schools are within a certain range of what we know about the district as a whole. Charter schools, also within the public sector, you can have many of the same freedoms and flexibilities that I think are attractive sometimes in a private sector, but with accountability, um, both for student test scores, for how money is spent. 
Um, and finally, transfer policies is one that sometimes we don't think about. Uh, thinking back to the mom, uh, Kelly Williams Bolar, who was arrested in Ohio, she wanted to send her child to another public school. It was an excellent, excellent public school. Had there been some sort of a transfer policy that had allowed her to move her child from one district to another or from a school within a district to another, that is another way that you can use choice and still keep it within a public sector. And finally, just to look at an example of student results in one of these cases, so Cambridge that has had um, this equitable district-wide choice program for a number of years now uh, has incredibly strong results for their students. These are graduation rates looking at Cambridge compared to Massachusetts as a whole and neighboring Boston. And not just uh, the average for all students, but low-income students and black and Hispanic students in that district are seeing really strong results. Thank you. Everybody having fun? Thanks for coming out. Well, I'm Corey DeAngelis. I'll be making the case for private education. In particular, I'll be making the case for privately funded education savings accounts at the state level, not the federal level. An education savings account is like a voucher program, but it allows parents to spend the educational expenditures on the education for their child, not just private school tuition, but for tutoring, textbooks, um, special needs therapies if necessary, and other things like that. So it really takes advantage of the fact that schooling is just one way to get to an education. ESAs are educational choice, whereas vouchers are just simply school choice. I really want to look at four main questions that I think are important today. First, I'm going to make the argument that private school choice is superior to public school choice for a number of reasons. That if we're going to have private school choice, it should be in the form of education savings accounts for all the reasons I just gave you. I don't think that we should embrace all types of choice, especially if it's highly regulated choice, because we can end up in a, in a world where we're worse off than we are today. For example, if we have the government giving tons of money to autonomous private schools, you can essentially think of a world where private schools are turned into public schools from accepting all of this government funds and all of these regulations. And I don't think we should have highly regulated uh, uh, programs mostly, mostly because of the fact that test scores are not good proxies for the long-term outcomes that we actually care about. There's studies on this that Petrilli and I will talk about a little later during the Q&A, but the effects that step programs and teachers and schools have on their reading scores of students uh, do not predict the, the same uh, effects that they'll have on the long-term outcomes. So if we're regulating based on uh, these faulty measures, then we could actually be harming students in the long run if test scores don't actually matter. So John Merrifield talked a little bit about this, um, but private school choice should outperform public school choice because private schools, there's three main differences between private schools of choice and charter schools, for example. Private schools are allowed to have prices, so they're allowed to set tuition. And as the economists in the audience know, prices give us the information and incentives necessary to do a good job. And John Merrifield talked a little bit about shortages in the charter school sector, which run rampant here in DC. There are about 10,000 students in the most recent school year that are on charter school wait lists. And this is the result of shortages. And as economists also know, shortages that persist over time lead to quality deterioration in any market, including schooling. Um, and it could be in the charter school market, one of the reasons for this quality deterioration is that it gives the charter school leaders monopoly power over all the people on the wait list. They can replace an unhappy customer with one of the 10,000 students waiting in line. 
Uh, private schools of choice have the autonomy um, to be religious schools if they want to. Charter schools are not allowed to be religious. And this may give them a competitive advantage at shaping moral education or character skills. Uh, and we can't forget the fact that rich people can already send their kids to religious uh, schools to allow them to freely exercise the religious education that they want for their kids. We should allow uh, low-income students to do the same thing, and we shouldn't impose our values on them just because they're using some money. And private schools are less likely, or private schools are less likely to be regulated than public schools, so they have additional autonomy, which gives them the abilities to uh, produce high-quality uh, educational environments. We should go over the evidence of private school choice because a lot of people want to, will spew the myth that the evidence on private school choice is mixed. It's not. It's not. And some people will try to tell you that the evidence on private school choice is negative. It's not. Let me show you. So here's the 17 experimental evaluations in the United States that look at the effects of voucher programs on student test scores. I don't even care about student test scores, but let's go into the evidence anyway on student test scores. The majority of the studies find statistically significant positive effects of voucher programs on students in the United States on their test scores for some or all students. Only two of the studies find statistically significant negative effects. The second to the bottom is the one in Louisiana. Both of those on the bottom just to know our first year evaluations of the programs when the kids are still adjusting to their new educational environments. Um, it actually is worth noting that the Louisiana study at second to the bottom moved to the yellow uh, by year three. The, the uh, kids in the private schools uh, caught up to their traditional public school peers. So it should actually only be one red box here. But what about the kids that are left behind that don't even choose private schools? You know, they, they may be left behind and, and they might do worse because, you know, all the most advantaged kids may be choosing to use the voucher program. Well, there are 26 studies on this, and 25 of the 26 studies find that the kids that are left behind do better as well. And this might be because they don't have to take the test score hit when they're transitioning into new schools. So these kids benefit from competitive pressures without even having to change schools. Uh, none of these studies are negative. Who cares about test scores? So let's look at the attainment effects. Uh, high school graduation and college enrollment. These are quasi-experimental and experimental studies. None of them are negative, most of them are positive. Uh, let's look at democratic outcomes. There are 11 studies that are experimental or quasi-experimental in the United States looking at these civic outcomes like civic engagement, political participation, altruism, charitable activity, tolerance of others. Most of these studies are positive, none are red. Most of them are positive. Um, so whenever people try to tell you that private school choice will threaten democracy as we know it, um, show them this table and tell them that they're wrong. And sorry, Horace Mann, you were very wrong. Racial integration. Has anybody heard the myth that school choice segregates? Well, there's about 10 studies on this. None of them are negative in the private school choice sphere. Most of them are positive. Um, one is not statistically different from zero. Uh, but the overwhelming evidence suggests that when you allow kids that are disadvantaged to leave their racially segregated neighborhood schools, society actually becomes more racially integrated. But that's not true entirely for public schools of choice. There are some studies that find negative effects for public district choice and chartered public school choice. So if we only care about racial integration and we care about the scientific evidence, we would be compelled to, to embrace private school choice rather than public school choice, if racial integration is all you care about. What type of private school choice? I already argued for education savings accounts. I don't want to get into this much more, but allows for parents to customize the educational environment better than a voucher program does. 
And it allows for more price differentiation, which we could talk about in the Q&A. I'm sure Merrifield would like to talk a little more about that as well in the Q&A. I prefer privately funded programs to publicly funded programs because they're less likely to be regulated. I think these should be done at the state level. I don't think they should be done at the federal level because states are laboratories of democracy. And if you enact a bad program at the federal level that's highly regulated, you cannot escape it by voting with your feet unless you move to another country, which is almost impossible to do. I used to think that we should just embrace all types of school choice. You know, give me some charter schools, give me some voucher programs, give me an ESA. How about traditional public schools too? Let's just have it all. And we'll have the market determine the winner. And that's how I started to think about these things until I realized that in practice, it doesn't turn out that way. And for one, one of the reasons is that it's fake competition. DC, for example, DC voucher students get about $9,600 per student per year, whereas DC charter students get 46% more dollars per year, and DC public schools get triple the amount that the voucher students get uh, per year. So if you find you know, the similar test scores in all the sectors, you might incorrectly say, oh, well, they're all doing the same. But if the voucher students are doing it for a fraction of the cost, then that's actually a win. And you can see, a, uh, you can see how this would play out, and people could start just using the charters just because they have more resources, not because it's a better form of choice. And there's political problems with this, too. People will say, oh, well, we already have public school choice. Why do we need private school choice? So that's another reason why we should not embrace uh, inferior types of choice. Um, and then regulated school choice can be a Trojan horse. You know, the, the homeschool community talks about this a lot. But essentially, as I said earlier, uh, the government can start giving a ton of money to private schools that are autonomous right now and then turn them into public schools. And we can end up in a worse off situation than we are now. Regulations. Well, we already have a ton of regulations. And regulations have grown in the K-12 through sector by about 1,200% since the 1970s. NAEP scores have been flat, as everybody knows. The 2017 NAEP just came out recently, um, but the long-term trend NAEP have been flat since the 70s. Regulations don't seem like they do what they intend to do, just like in any other industry. There's a lot of unintended consequences with regulations. And the, a lot of these regulations that when we're trying to put them on private school choice programs are based on test scores. And as I said, test scores are not good predictors of long-term outcomes. Here's an AEI study that was released recently that Petrilli and I will talk a little more about later. But when they looked at school choice programs' effects on test scores and tried to see if those test scores' effects predicted their long-term effects, only 50% of the studies actually found a, that the test score effects predicted long-term effects, which is evidence that uh, test scores might not be all that important. If we focus too much on test scores, on cognitive skills, we'll focus left, less on the non-cognitive skills like character skills and hard work, which may actually matter in the long run for things like earnings and graduation rates. I started to compile the evidence on this as well. And so it's not just disconnects between test scores and graduation rates. It actually also exists um, that, that studies that find effects on test scores find a different effects on things like earnings, effort of students, altruism, charitable activity, uh, political participation. So all of these other disconnects exist as well, not just with high school graduation, which further uh, informs the case that test scores aren't all that valuable and we should not regulate programs simply based on test scores. And I'm not sure if it should even be part of the regulatory structure. Test scores are so valuable, then people could pick schools based on test scores and we don't need the regulators to come in and pick them for us. Only one out of the, one out of the three private schools uh, that exists in Louisiana chose to participate in their program, probably because it's one of the most 
highly regulated programs. We can talk more about why Louisiana could have failed, but I'm again going to make the case that we should embrace privately funded ESAs at the state level because regulations are bad and prices are good. Thank you. All right, so we obviously have a lot to chew on, and not the least of which is whether or not that suit's any good. Um, There's no debate. Ooh. No. Well, I actually, uh, Mike was so proud of the suit, he was tweeting about it earlier. So I did offer anybody who's on Cover It Live, if you want to send questions or comments about the suit, feel free. Um, uh, so the way, like I said earlier, I'd like to run this is, I usually don't uh, like to ask questions because I think it's better to have the audience do it. If I find nobody has questions, I'll ask a few just to get uh, the juices flowing. Um, but also remember that I'll be calling on Blake if he raises his hand. That means somebody outside of the Hayek Auditorium is asking a question. And I should say, um, Mike, because um, Corey mentioned this study, which I know you've been writing about a lot. If there are no questions, I'll let you respond to that right off the bat. If not, you'll have to find a clever way, clever way to work it into an answer to someone's question. I know you can do that. Sounds good. Um, and the only other thing is, uh, when I call on you, please wait till the microphone comes, um, and you can state your name and affiliation if you'd like, but it's really important you get the microphone so that the people watching live know what your question is. So with that, are there any questions right now in the audience? And we have one, we're gonna to go to this lady and then we'll go to Blake with our first <clears throat> online question. He might have a question of his own. Hi, um, my name's Jamie and uh, I'm, I just have a couple of questions. Uh, so for Mr. DeAngelis, am I, am I saying that properly? Get it right, thanks. Okay, so um, I just have a couple of questions based on what you were talking about the privatization, the private schools. And so one of my biggest concerns is, so when you talk about how test scores don't matter, I completely and unequivocally ag agree with you on that. However, what I often wonder is in a pragmatic sense, how would you uh, utilize this information that, you're, that you have and disperse it among our public considering the fact that when you're looking at these schools, we're looking at test scores, and then they apply to college, and then they look at test scores. So is that something that the public is going to be changing their mind on? That may, Hey, maybe it doesn't matter what the test scores are, because if you want to go to an Ivy League school, mm -hmm. they're going to be looking for that, I think it's 1,800 on their SATs, which is a test score. And so which so, test scores? So unfortunately, although we believe that test scores don't matter, yeah. That's not what the schools believe. And there are way more opportunities in an Ivy League school than there is in, say, you know, a, a school that's rated, say, 300 or 400. And so I just want to know what you think is the best way to manage. It, it's, your ideas sound great. However, it doesn't seem plausible in, in this kind of setting. And also with the information that you gave, all the statistics and stuff, there, there were a lot of positive ratings for private school. However, um, I'm wondering in terms of, you talk about altruism, you talk about, uh, you know, social, the social aspect of it all. But how is that actually being tested? You know, where are you getting that data from? And how do they say, okay, this person is more altruistic, there's l less racial <laughs> discrimination, et cetera? Yeah, so I'll take your first question first. I usually flip it around and do the second question okay. first. 
Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, college admissions re 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 uh, require you to do standardized testing with SAT or ACT and stuff like that. But these regulations are not telling the private schools that they must do SAT or ACT. They're telling them that they have to do nationally norm reference tests or all the state tests, wherever state that they're in. And so, you know, people can still take the SAT or ACT without taking the standardized tests at the state level. Um, and, and you're right that there is a huge incentive to get into really good private schools or you know, uh, colleges or universities uh, that you got to take the ACT or SAT. So since people have that strong incentive to do so, you don't need to force schools to, to get into standardized testing. People um, choose schools that are good at standardized testing. Um, but again, uh, you don't, you don't have to take the SAT or ACT in any, any of these programs. Um, on the second question, uh, so wait, what was this all about? Uh, Data on social outcomes. Oh, yeah, so how do we, how do we measure, like, uh, tolerance of others? Or, so one of the studies, there's actually three studies on linking school choice to crime, and I think these are really interesting, partially because one of the three studies are mine. Uh, but two of them are in charter schools, and they use random lottery. So just like in a medical trial, when you're determining who gets the drug, you use random assignment to give one, uh, the treatment group uh, the, the drug. And then in medical trials, they randomly assign a placebo to another group. With charter schools, since they have lotteries, they randomly assign some kids to get the charter school treatment and some kids to get the traditional public school treatment. And then you just follow the kids over time and you can compare their differences in outcomes and you can know with certainty that it's the effect of the treatment. With my uh, crime study, for example, though, this is a matching study, so we just control for as many things as we can, and that's, a, that's in the private school choice sphere. But yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the ones in my table, they were either quasi-experimental or experimental. I think about half of them were experiments. So like with, with tolerance, for example, what they do is it's based on surveys. Um, so they ask the students that won the lottery, how likely are you able to allow this person to run for president that you disagree with? So they, they write down like what group they disagree with the most. And the next question is like, um, how likely are you, you to let them, you know, get in public and give a speech or run for president? And the kids that are randomly assigned the ability to go to a private school rather than, a, than not go to a, a private school are much more tolerant of others. Does anybody else want to say anything on these? Well, oh, I'll, I'll just say that um, there's a, a lot of research that is also looking at some of those non-cognitive outcomes, specifically around the questions of um, what diversity in environment looks like. Um, I don't know that there is enough to compare. Um, I don't know that there are studies that look at if you're in a diverse private school setting versus a diverse public school setting versus segregated private, segregated public. Um, but we do have really consistent uh, information around the fact that uh, diverse settings in general are really associated with strong outcomes on those uh, non-cognitive uh, factors, um, especially including reducing uh, stereotyping and increasing um, racial tolerance. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I'll, I'll table whether, you know, the, the research uh, suggests that private school choice gets you to um, more integrated environment. Um, but, you know, think that, you know, if we're really concerned about non-cognitive outcomes, there are some other factors in terms of what's happening at a school or a classroom that may have bigger effects on that. 
Yeah, re real briefly on the test score point, I, I can certainly agree that test scores are not everything. I think it's a good thing that we're trying to look for other measures of non-cognitive skills and other things we care about. Uh, but this notion that test scores are irrelevant, it's just simply not true. I mean, you know, be great if we lived in that world, but uh, in general, on average, yes, uh, we know from, for example, the Raj Chetty studies of teacher value added that kids, when, when kids learn more uh, in school as measured by standardized tests, they earn more as adults. Uh, we know that those universities use SAT and ACT scores for a reason. They're under a lot of pressure not to use them, but they use them because uh, they find that kids who do better on those tests do better in their institutions. So of course there's counterexamples. Of course there's kids out there who don't test well and they still do fine. Of course there's kids, people who are smarty pants and do great on tests and they, you know, are terrible at actually completing college or doing a job or anything. So, you know, of course we should have limited, I won't get into the study then quite yet, but, but just to say, uh, it, I think it also strains common sense to say, okay, if you've got a kid, especially a low income kid who goes to a KIPP school, you know, and in middle school, let's say they go in and as a sixth grader, they're several years behind and they come out of that middle school back on track that that kid is not gonna do better in their life than a kid who goes to some you know, mediocre school and comes in, out of that school still a couple years behind. Um, of course that's gonna help them. Uh, and, and so I, you know, let, let's just be, you know, by all means put it in perspective, but I think it's, it's kind of starts to sound ridiculous to try to claim that this is not important at all. Uh, you know, these are about literacy skills, numeracy skills, writing skills, uh, to some degree background knowledge. This stuff matters for whether people are gonna have opportunities and succeed in the real world. Well, if, if test scores are so important, then we don't have to force people to choose schools based on test scores. They would do it out of their own volition. But they're not, Corey. And, uh, and that's the question. I mean, that's, that's the, well, then, you know, that, that the case is, right. No, I mean, look, and I get it. Look, if, and, and absolutely, from a market-based perspective, if your goal uh, is to give maximum freedom and to give parents what they want, then, then that's fine. Of course, it's not going to be very hard because all the latest surveys show that the overwhelming majority of parents are happy with their schools. Uh, you know, that, that, so that, that's achievable. You get 100% customer satisfaction. And my argument is if we're still in a place where especially low-income kids are, you know, graduating high school, barely able to read and write and do math, that's not good enough. Okay, now we're going to go to our first Cover It Live question, and that'll come through Blake Horty. All right, we have a question from Randy. He says, Potter recommends expanding magnet schools as an alternative to private school choice programs. How do magnet schools determine their respective educational themes in the absence of market signals? I guess that's for Hallie. <laughs> yeah, well, market research doesn't always have to be about dollars. Um, and in fact, good magnet school programs and uh, districts that have taken these programs at scale, so essentially even made all of their district schools into magnet schools, start by surveying families and figuring out what in-demand programs are. Um, if you find out that families in your district really want more STEM programs, then you can create a strategic program where you locate those STEM magnet schools um, somewhere where you're drawing families across a district. Um, you can uh, create more equitable outcomes for families that way. You are responding to a market, but you're starting with a premise that we we are giving every family in this school district uh, 
a voice, a vote, and a seat at a school. And so by surveying opinions, you're you're still being really responsive to some of those dynamics. Um, What you're not doing is creating a system where it depends on what your family's income is, and then you have the families like Kelly's who are never going to be the winners there. Well, there's plenty of philanthropy going on. If we didn't have philanthropists underwriting charter schools so they could survive, they could be underwriting, and I believe they would be underwriting the co-payments that would exist for some limited number of schools in a system where the, pro- where the price system, which, by the way, surveys people more effectively than a so-called survey does. See, you know, when the price system decides what gets produced, how it gets produced, where and for whom, everybody votes. It's not just a survey by a few experts of a few people that respond to the survey while everybody else throws it away. It's a 100% response rate survey. And see, that's why the signal, the price system signal is so important because it invol- it's called decentralized planning. It involves all of the potential producers and all of the potential consumers. And see, I look, I look out there and I see a lot of furrowed eyebrows. They don't know what I'm talking about. Most everything is run by the price system. Schooling is the exception. Okay? It's central planning. It's never worked anywhere for anything, including schooling. We have to get out of the mindset of where a bunch of experts are going to get together and figure out how we do things. We've got to open it up to where 100% of the knowledge of the public is what's involved. We're sitting in an auditorium called the Hayek Auditorium. He wrote a book called Fatal Conceit. That is where people think they're smart enough to know what everybody else wants. Okay, the price system tells us that if, we, if we're willing to use it. Okay, but no central planning process, whether it's driven by a democratically elected elite or a, or a, or a totalitarian elite has ever produced acceptable results. And, and we had some, more, some call for more government oversight. You see the system that government oversight, which is called political correctness, Produces. That's why we're here discussing this, because it's a disaster. It's a gold-plated disaster. We keep spending more money on it and keep trying to optimize our central planning, and it keeps producing pretty much the same result with all of these nice exceptions that we're talking about. But that's all they are, is they're nice exceptions that are fun to talk about, whereas the whole system continues to fail. So I I am curious, John, I mean, do you believe that if you had a system like you're describing— that you would see dramatically better results in terms of, well, Corey doesn't like test scores, but then let's look at life outcomes. You'd see many more low-income kids uh, getting excellent educational experiences that allowed them to be more successful than we see today. I I would, and by the way, I would like to point out that that according to income mobility studies, only 3% of the population starts life poor and ends it poor. Almost everybody, even in the current system, where you're lucky to get a good education, even if you go to a suburban school, uh, do very many people stay poor all their lives? Okay, so we're not talking about mass poverty and massive half the population being poor. At any given moment, they might be classified in the bottom 50%, but most people move within the, core, the quintiles, the 20% levels, a lot within their lifetime. And, and look up Thomas Sowell for this result. Only 3% of the population spends its whole life 
in the bottom 20%. I'm gonna just stop you one second, okay. Corey, because this has happened twice now when you've been a panelist, mm -hmm. and I've been a moderator, and you just go ahead and ask a question. Well, if you're not gonna and ask the questions, Neil, I mean, come on, you're clear, you know, this is what I, happens. I, Nature I, abhors a, va a vacuum. I think you're letting your suit go to your head. Uh, okay, go ahead. I'm gonna start asking the questions on Twitter. If I do by Twitter, will you relay them? Is that you. okay? All right, thanks. <laughs> Can I say something about Twitter real quick? I've got a website, schoolsystemreformstudies.net, where we have a conversation forum. Can we have some public conversations that don't exist as a brief Twitter burst and then disappear? Called I mean, Cover It Live. I mean, that, that, would, live. Right, that would be kind of nice Merge it all to do that. All right, we haven't let Corey I, talk, I just, so we better let him I go. just want to know why we think the regulators have the ability to determine what high quality actually is. I mean, if you look at the Facebook testimony with Mark Zuckerberg, those people had no freaking clue about technology, and we want those people to regulate our education system, too. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And even if we use the most advanced statistical procedures that we have to determine the effects of a school, it's called value-added methodology, where you, know, you, you use these statistical econometric techniques to figure out the effects of schools on kids' test scores. Even if we assume that test scores are the metric that we care about, let's say test scores were good uh, predictors of long-term outcomes, value-added methodology assumes random assignment of kids to schools. Well, what's the whole point of school choice? The whole point of school choice is to allow people to choose schools, not randomly. Um, so that kind of destroys the best methodology that we have to determine quality, even if we bought the argument that test scores were important. So don't have so much faith in regulators. They have no idea what they're doing. I, did, I really think that families and parents know best about their individual children better than any of, any of us up here could tell you about children. I don't even know if these people up here have children. I don't know if you have a child. I, I'm, I definitely don't know if you do have a child what they need. So I think you should be able to pick the, the school for your kid, not me. Nobody so, in the audience should feel the need to say where they have children, <laughs> by the way. Go ahead. Well, look, I, I, I think Corey is simply wrong. Uh, of course, we don't want the Senate making these decisions, okay? But how is it working here in, in Washington, D.C.? The, the D.C. Public Charter School Board is the regulator, okay? And they oversee 120 charter schools here. And they look at data to make sure that the schools are doing okay. And most of the time, they look at the data and they say it's fine. When there are some schools where things are looking not so good, based on the test scores and other things, they go in for a look. And they have a very intensive pro a process to go in with their own eyes and find out what's happening. Uh, why now, why aren't parents result, leaving those schools in? Uh, well, as you've pointed out, Corey... There's no smirking, okay? This is real life, you know, life and death stuff here, okay? The reason, you know, parents may have decided that they have the best option for their kids at this time. But in D.C., we don't have a lot of extra facilities, for example, for charter schools. So if the D.C. Public Charter School Board closes a chronically low-performing charter school uh, and allows a new startup or replication of a high-quality school to take its place, including possibly its facility, then suddenly those parents have the opportunity to send their kids to a life-changing uh, environment. In places where we don't have this, like in Ohio, where we do a lot of work, let me tell you, there's a lot of crappy schools where you go in and with your own eyes, you can see that there's not a lot of teaching and learning going on. Now, again, the parents are, you know, maybe choosing the best choice that they have, but the choices in Dayton, Ohio suck. And the choices in Washington, D.C. are pretty darn good. 
Okay, so many of us are out there fighting every day to try to say, how can we make Dayton more like DC? And in my view, that has to do with better oversight, also has to do with more money, right? And, and you know, to just disregard that and give nice speeches about how bad regulators are, you are consigning low-income kids in Dayton uh, to a system where, you know, they still have nothing but bad choices. Uh, and that's not good enough. The political process has consigned the kids in okay. Dayton, not to mention Akron, to, to low-quality schools. I mean, those are the, the reason that people don't get out. We need that board here in D.C. Here in DC. Why? Because the price system is not allowed to perform that function. That's fine. But that, look, you know, but that is right, way gonna, better than what, you know, than what Corey wants. Corey said, ah, oh, they're too regulated. All right, I'm going to stop you right there just so we can get to more questions. I'm sure you'll find a way to bridge to continue this argument. <laughs> Ma'am, did you have a question over here? I'm going to try and bounce back and forth. Do we have any cover it live, too? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're, we're going to get ready for those, too. But all right, we still we have some time. And just, a, I meant to mention, let's just do one question or one comment just so we can get to everybody. But you can make a comment. If you want to say anything about that suit, please go Thank ahead you. because it's out of control. Great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, my name is Paige. Thank you all for your presentations. Uh, Mr. Petrelli, you talked about the narrative um, that school choice is not working. And I think so. on the opposition, um, you have the unions and the, the uh, American Federation of Teachers, and they have a consistent message that they use, and they seem, they seem to be unified in their messaging against school choice. Yeah. Why do you think that the school choice and education reform movement is much more fragmented? Mm -hmm. And what do you think that we can do to change the narrative without um, just the data? Wow, that's a really tough question. Uh, great question. I don't know. I have a good answer. I mean, I think I think you're right. I think that uh, we are more fragmented. We do like to have these kinds of public debates, and and you know, in large respect, I think that's healthy. We are a democracy. Uh, you know, we believe in in liberal democratic ideals of having open debate and hoping that the will of reason will lead us to the best outcomes. Right. The unions, uh, I think, have this sense of a common enemy. Uh, and they view school choice as an existential threat, you know, so they are very unified on that. On other issues, uh, it's interesting where they are not as unified. They try to just stay quiet. For example, on the big debates around discipline reform right now, I think there's a lot of disagreement within their ranks. And so their leaders just stay mum. Um, but uh, look, I think what, what we in education reform and the school choice movement need to worry about is, is not you know, so much what the unions say, but how do we persuade the persuadables, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who are still on the fence about these things? Uh, and, uh, you know, look, I think we do that better in some places than others. I think it certainly helps when you can point to success stories. It helps when you've got larger market share. It's interesting that in Washington, D.C., you cannot run as an anti-charter school mayor right now and get elected. Uh, that's interesting. That's not the case very many places. Uh, how can we make that happen more often? So, uh, you know, but I think it's a good question. We, we need to absolutely do better at it. I think we should make, start making, so a lot of times the school choice debate is, you know, it's, it's this kind of intense battlefield of the teachers unions versus the people that want school choice. And I don't think the story should be that way. I think we should start making the case that school choice could actually benefit teachers too, because currently in the labor market for K through 12 teachers, we have what we call in economics, a near monopsony situation, kind of like a monopoly, but when you only have one employer, which is the government. And so there are about three studies now that I know of that when school choice is introduced, the teacher salaries actually improve because of labor market competition. 
Um, so the traditional public schools raise their salaries so that they don't lose their teachers to to this uh, competitive uh, threat. And so I think we should start, you know, trying to get the teachers on our side too to to push the narrative uh, even further. Okay, we're going to go back to cover it live. Then I'll go back to a live person. <laughs> for sure. This is from Tori Bell. She is an education policy analyst. A question for the panel. Rural communities face unique challenges with education. What should school choice look like for rural communities? Well, in a rural community, it's going to be a choice between an online school and the, and the traditional public school. I mean, that's a case where there, where there just isn't enough population density to support a lot of face-to-face -face schools. But even in those cases, there are going to be examples from more densely populated schools that people will raise and say, hey, why can't our schools do that? So we, we need not only to have active competition and the ability to custom, to specialize and to offer specialized alternatives to diverse children, but we need to have, especially for not so densely populated places, we need to have the opportunity for the local citizens through our political process to say, these other places are able to do this, why can't we do that? Right now there's not much pressure of that kind. More than there used to be. Give, give, give us credit for the progress we've made. And we've been talking about all the progress we've made. Sure, compared to zero, anything looks big. But uh, for the vast majority of children, I think 80-something percent, they're, they're still in their assigned public school. And if you choose by where you live, you have your, you have your choice between uh, different grades of the same product, but not a different product. I think um, rural settings are one of the ones that uh, can help crystallize, to my mind, why the market just isn't going to solve some of these needs for kids. If you have students uh, with disabilities um, or students who are a minority in some way, a religious minority living in a rural community, you just don't have the numbers to have a market solution for what that kid needs. You know, if you have a community that is overwhelmingly Christian and you have Christian private schools that are serving the needs of that market really well, that's great for the 90% and the 10%, the market will be happy with them getting nothing. Whether we as a society should be happy with them getting an educational solution is a different question. And I think, you know, it's precisely that sort of environment where because you don't have the concentration to have a market solution for every niche need, you need some sort of a different system that ensures everyone is getting a basic minimum of what that kid needs to have the education to set them on a platform to be successful later in life. I think for reasons Mike Petrilli gave earlier, nobody's talking about eliminating the assigned school as the default options. Okay, so I mean, that takes care of that. And as you say, in a rural environment, there's probably not enough numbers to create any uh, very many other face-to-face -face alternatives. Well, I don't completely agree with that because I think we're all looking at this. And I'm, yeah, I'm your previous student, so. Um, but you might agree with me at the end of the statement, so. This is what I said. Now we're going to see if you surpass, surpass the master. So. Uh, so we're looking at the rural situation in the short run, right? Just because there's only one private school or no private schools in a rural area doesn't mean that when you give everybody the ability to pay for a private school through a voucher or some other private school choice mechanism, um, you know, market entry could occur and then you could have five private schools uh, down the road. So just because 
I don't think just because uh, we have one private school now doesn't mean that we're always going to have one private school in that area, especially if the demand was near zero before the voucher. And then all of a sudden you get this huge demand where everybody has the ability at least uh, to use a voucher. I've found some basis to partially agree. Well, and that is because schools are way too big now. We try to put everything under one roof for everybody, create these mega schools. The 1985 book, amazingly old for how insightful it was, called them the shopping mall schools. If we had school choice, we wouldn't have to try to satisfy every kind of child in one campus. And then we would have smaller schools, which a lot of people have said exactly what we need. Problem is in the current system, small schools don't work because you can't assign people based on where they live to a school that isn't big enough to, to, to address diverse tastes and preferences. So to get to where our schools are smaller, we need to have school choice, specialization, or specialization. Sorry, I'm, I'm, Corey kids me about talking Cajun every once in a while. Uh, but, but we need specialization, and we can achieve even a little bit of that in, in rural settings through online schools and through the public school or schools being smaller than they used to be, and thus making room for some market entry. All right, before anybody else talks Cajun, let's go to uh, other questions in the audience. Let's go yeah. to the back there. Um, so the lady in the back has got her hand up. And then do we have more Cover It Live? Because we'll go to that after this lady. Trace is having questions. Um, this question is really, oh, my name is Rosemary Davis. Um, I have been toying with um, starting a private school for boys in the state of Maryland. So my question is for Mr. Petrelli and also for anyone else who wants to answer. Um, when we talk about test scores in this country, we're always talking about um, college and college preparation. But one of the things that research is showing right now is that um, this country lacks in the STEM fields. Um, and when we talk about low-income students, um, STEM jobs actually are very sustainable jobs right now. Mm -hmm. And they're the jobs of the future. So I'm, I guess my question is, why are we always focused on college entry, college admission, when in the STEM fields, um, some of them being six-figure incomes, um, we're not steering our students into those fields. Um, we're constantly focusing on, you know, I need to get into Yale, I need to get into Harvard, which is great, right. but that is not the trajectory for every student, nor should it be, um, especially if we're basing it on socioeconomic status. Yeah. No, uh, well said. You know, I'm a huge fan of high quality career and technical education. I think many of us in education reform really made a huge mistake for many years in talking only about college. You know, we might have meant, well, we don't really mean four-year college, but a lot of us did. I mean, we talked about it like that. And it was because we saw the evidence that, you know, if, if you were poor and you made it to and through a four-year degree, you were practically guaranteed to get out of poverty. Uh, and so that was compelling. Uh, but I think we, a lot of us have come around to understand that, that high-quality career and technical routes uh, can be very successful too. And look, this is where we need market-based reform also. I mean, community colleges, I think, today are a mess. Um, you know, I mean, there certainly should be more high-quality routes that kids can start in high school working towards real credentials that are going to be valuable in the marketplace, doing apprenticeships, you know, getting that kind of training uh, and getting into those jobs without having to go through the, the, the normal post-secondary route. So absolutely. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, to the degree that we think about what's next in education reform, I think something around that 
thinking about the 11th and 12th grades and the first couple of years of college and how can that be totally transformed? Uh, so we don't have so many kids just sitting, marching in the sort of death march through courses they don't care about. I mean, there's, there's a lot of potential there. Let me, let me jump in briefly on this. There, was, there were so many wrinkled brows and I mentioned price systems and how that worked. Here's a perfect example about what a disaster price control is. One of the reasons we're so dependent on immigrants, I'm an immigrant among them, for the very technical STEM fields and others like economics is because of the single salary schedule. Okay, we pay all the teachers the same based on credentials and how many years of experience they have. I think it's like 95% of the teachers in the country, single salary schedule. So invariably we have shortages of STEM field teachers. So why don't we engage enough students to go to college in these STEM fields? Because they've been taught math by the football coach. Okay, somebody that would rather be doing X's and O's rather than teaching math. Okay, so we need the price system in order so that we don't have shortages of the kinds of teachers that we need to engage children in the kinds of subject matter that we're desperate to have native-born people be in so that they aren't as reliant on people like me, educated while well, I was educated fully here, but in so many others. You don't go to any college campus. The vast majority of the professors doing the STEM fields and in economics needed a visa, and English wasn't their first language. Now, how can that be? It's because we didn't engage enough native-born children in these fields. I mean, they're, they're plenty smart enough. It's just we didn't engage them in math and science early enough so that they chose that as career fields. And we never will as long as we have a priceless school system, one without the market setting the prices of things, including teachers. Okay, we're down to the last five minutes. We're gonna to go to the speed round. By the way, I know we're about to get a lot of letters from angry football coaches. Um, but so we're gonna to go to cover it live and then I hope we can get one more live person in the audience. So go ahead, Blake. All right, this is from, wow, this name looks familiar, Michael Petrilli. I do uh, know myself, uh, I know, I mean, look. No, 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 we gotta do one that's not from him. Yeah, I'm that's not, okay. Yeah, that's not even, it's not even clever cheating, really, so. Change the name. I thought about having my intern do it, but that, that was complicated, all right, yeah, yeah. Is there someone not named Mike Petrilli who might like to ask a question, or I'll go to a person here. Okay, yeah. Cheating. Um, we do have a question from uh, Tyler Koteski. Uh, for Ms. Wait a minute, I know Tyler's here too, so I see we see a lot of gaming of the cover live system. Uh, I'm gonna go, you keep, keep looking, and we'll go to this man right here. You had a question? We'll go to him and we'll see if we can get a cover it live. There's not someone in here cheating, and we're gonna find out who you are. So you're right here. Uh, my name is Trace Mitchell. I wanna thank you all for coming out and speaking today. Um, my question is, it seems like one of the most prominent and uh, most substantive criticisms of school choice is in regards to uh, charter schools gaming the system, specifically focused on revenue maximization at the expense of students and without much input from the communities. Um, that seems like that's a problem as a result of not allowing the individuals the choice to uh, move their money where they would, a problem that educational savings accounts might alleviate. Um, I guess my question would be, what are some of the institutional reforms that you think we could implement um, that prevent this sort of cronyism from occurring that, that wouldn't be better solved by a more privatized, again, individual choice-based system that allows the parents to choose? It's another shortage price system, price control story. Uh, I'm, I'm, if, but, well, you directed it to somebody else, so I'll wait. You guys want to answer that? 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I just push back a little bit on the, the premise here. I mean, we see that there have been some charter school scandals, for sure, in Ohio, exam, uh, tons of them. Uh, it tends to be in places where there's weak oversight. You know, we don't see as many of those uh, scandals happening in places like Washington, D.C. with stronger oversight. So I just don't know that that proves your point. I, I Look, I do worry uh, that this is going to happen uh, and is probably already happening in some of the private school world. You know, I think with, with the private, the, on the private school choice side, to the extent that you have mostly existing schools that have been around for a long time, that are nonprofits, that are well run, that have a lot of reasons to, you know, that you've got already plenty of controls in place, right? Where you would worry about is, you know, some crook out there, and there are crooks out there, say, hey, there's free public money for the having. Uh, and I'm going to figure out how to get my hands on some of it. You know, that's what we've seen in the charter sector. And I think if you saw in the private school sector more schools that were startups, you'd have some, you know, hopefully small, but some percentage of them that would be trying to, to do that as well. Uh, you know, right now there's not the incentive to do that in the private school choice side because the money just is so low. Now, if there was a lot of money and if it was via education savings accounts, I, I don't, I worry a lot that you'd have that kind of fraud. Okay, so we have, oh, no, go ahead. Uh, um, I'll just add, you know, why do we know that there have been scandals in some charter schools? Because we have a bit of accountability that is, you know, even in systems that are not as well regulated as they should be, that then, you know, gives us that crack open um, to, you know, peek through the door and realize something's not right and then do some further investigation. So I'm not at all convinced that moving to an education savings account system would solve that problem. I do think it might totally sweep it under the rug because we wouldn't even have the accountability that we have right now that lets us see some of the problems where we've strayed. Do we have any question we can do as a speed round because we're really at the end, but if we can get one fast one, it might come from someone in here, that's okay. Okay, um, this is from Don Crawford for Mike Petrelli. It might be his intern or an alias. We'll never know <laughs> I at this don't point. Know. I don't know a Don. I don't know him. <laughs> All right, Don Crawford, be fast uh -huh. with your answer because uh, we're almost done. Do you recognize that competition for students will drive school providers to increase the quality and effectiveness of their teaching? Uh, I, yeah, so the question is, you know, will, will that competition drive quality? The time, the intro. Uh, yeah, look. Uh, of us answer that oh, one? Yeah, yeah. You, can all get, you all get a 30-second like, oh, okay. answer. We're going to yeah. let Mike go first. Look, no, look, I it. support school choice, and I, I do think it has that potential. But I think we've also seen in plenty of places that it, that it hasn't. Uh, you know, that it, it – and it's because of all kinds of policy design failures and all things that we can talk about. But I don't think we can take it as a given – uh, especially when it's, we try to do it kind of on the cheap, that you're going to see this flourishing and flowering. Uh, you know, that there's just too many places we can point to now in the real world where that hasn't worked. Okay, who else wants to say so something? So hasn't, yes, because we've had these little tiny doses of school choice. Okay? Now, the other thing is the notion that public schools are going to respond to competition is the jury is still out of that, I'm not so sure, because there's this, there's this issue of the people in the system don't really have any personal stake in it. They can go change jobs. Their, their, their livelihood is not at stake in, in, in the capital that they have invested in a business. Now, that said, why would public school results improve as a result of choice? And I believe is the main reason why studies have shown that they improve. Because we get the outliers out of the schools that they're assigned to. The okay, children in, for whom it's not working. So I'm gonna, okay, I'm, I'm, I'll be fast. Okay, we get the school, the kids out of the classroom for whom it's not working, which gives a more teachable classroom 
to the to the to the teachers for the children that remain. About thirty seconds. Did you want to add anything? Well, I'll just say if if somehow the market will miraculously create incredibly high salaries for all of our uh, teachers, not just STEM, but across the board, then um, I could maybe be convinced to come over to the other side. So, Before you get the last word, well, I get the last Piece word, but cake. you get the last word on the panel. Well, I did show you guys a couple of studies that were read earlier. We should, however... Um, even if we see a program like Louisiana that has negative test score effects in the first year, we just need to be questioning um, why are parents still choosing these schools, even if they're producing lower test scores. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you to the panelists. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming, everybody who uh, was online and, and used our, I think this is the first time we've done Cover It Live, so uh, I hope the experiment worked well. I hope you enjoyed it, those who are watching outside. For everybody who's here, there'll be a reception now in the Winter Garden. You just go out this door and you go down the hallway. It's sort of the big area that you walked into. Um, and there are also restrooms located on this level to the left of the elevators on the lower level. And so thank you all very much.